This is a 9-9. Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. You're listening to a podcast from key moments in Cold War sports history. I'm Vince Hunt and I've been your host over the past 40 episodes, considering how sport became a frontier in an era of superpower politics and intense international competition. Unfortunately, this is the final episode in the scheduled series, so we hope you've enjoyed hearing from such a fabulous collection of experts. It's been a fascinating series to be part of, and I'd like to thank all of our contributors and everyone in our team for taking part over the past three years. Please feel free to listen to them all over again on iTunes and Stitcher and share them with your friends. Look out for updates on Twitter at CWIHP and hashtag Cold War Sport. Thanks for being with us. The focus of this series so far has been mostly on the part played by athletes in Cold War Sport as East met West. But with official news channels closely controlled by the Soviet authorities, how did the people of the Eastern Bloc keep up to date with current events? One answer was by tuning to the shortwave transmissions of Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, stations set up and funded by the West from the mid-1950s, and which grew in importance to the extent that they were jammed and the Politburo would have daily briefings on what they were saying. Ross Johnson is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and a senior scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and he's a former director of Radio Free Europe. Ross, what about the origins of Radio Free Europe? How did it begin and what were its aims? Radio Free Europe began as one of uh, several projects um, organized by the United States government and influential private Americans in the late 40s uh, to take advantage of the emigres that had come from Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union and to get messages, to get information back to their homelands. Uh, So it began um, in 1949 and 1950. The first broadcasts of Radio Free Europe were from uh, New York in 1950. And originally, from the beginning up until 1971, it was funded covertly um, by the American Congress, but through the uh, Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, And then in 1971, uh, the funding became uh, public and the normal appropriations process. So it was a CIA operation at first? At the beginning, yes. First, the uh, uh, even before the CIA, the Office of Policy Coordination that was set up in the late forties, and then the uh, it was it was overseen and funded all, uh, primarily through the CIA. There was some private money also raised through the Crusade for Freedom that uh, solicited contributions from private American citizens and American corporations. So I guess there were transmitters pointing at various locations in the USSR. Uh, What were the main target areas? I mean, I guess Moscow would be one of them. Uh, You actually had two radio stations. Um, They were um, combined in 1976. But up until then, you had Radio Free Europe um, broadcasting to the the Soviet-controlled countries of Eastern Europe. And then you had Radio Liberty uh, broadcasting to the USSR itself. And the transmitters were in Europe. Um, For Eastern Europe, they were in Germany and Portugal. And for the Soviet Union, the transmitters were in Germany and Spain. 
And the effort was, uh, the intention was to reach as broad an audience as possible in those countries. Um, and uh, in fact, um, uh, the, the evidence was that, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, the, the audience was, uh, by any um, normal media standards, huge uh, uh, weekly reach of something like half of the population, so an enormous uh, reach at that time. And was it possible to pick up the Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty transmissions on uh, what would have been then, I guess, shortwave radios? It was shortwave and a bit of medium wave uh, to uh, two of the countries, Poland and Czechoslovakia. Uh, The broadcasts were jammed, the technical interference by the communist authorities to try to stop people from um, listening or to, to stop people from being able to understand the broadcasts. But it was never totally effective, and in some countries it stopped um, uh, relatively early. It stopped in Hungary in the 60s. It stopped in Romania in the 60s. Um, And uh, in spite of the technical interference, um, people were able to listen, um, particularly outside of the big cities. And uh, often um, residents of a a city like Prague would go out into the countryside uh, to their uh, weekend uh, dacha or whatever, and and listen. Um, so, in spite of the effort to block the broadcasts, um, they did get through to a remarkable extent. You were a director. How did you schedule your broadcasting in, in a way to play cat and mouse with the the jamming stations? This was the uh, art and science for the broadcast engineers, the transmission engineers. And um, the way around the jamming was multiple broadcasts on, on a whole lot of frequencies, so some would get through better than others, um, and power um, to, uh, to keep increasing the power of the transmissions, and the, um, the communist regimes would increase the power of their, um, of their jamming stations and, 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 and on and on. That was the, that was the technical part of it. Um, the broadcasts themselves, um, uh, these were the idea of Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty was that these were substitute home service stations, meaning they would provide a kind of full service broadcasting that the, um, the, the, the domestic radio stations run by uh, or under the supervision control of the communist regimes uh, uh, were not allowed to do. So the full-service stations, they had everything from music to uh, religious programs and uh, sports, and they were very decentralized operations. So in a sense, it's a misnomer to talk about, let's say, Radio Free Europe. It was actually a network of uh, broadcast stations for Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, and so on. And um, uh, editorial control was decentralized. So while um, for several years I was the director of Radio Free Europe, most of the programming decisions and the editorial decisions um, fell to the director of the Polish service, the director of the Czechoslovak service, and, and so on. It sounds very much like the, uh, the language services of the BBC World Service, but of course not funded by the CIA. That's right, although um, in, in a sense Radio Free Europe was the model for... Um, um, what happened later at the Voice of America and even the BBC, because um, uh, looking back at, at the history, um, um, BBC and VOA and the other Western broadcasters had, at least in the um, early decades, 
a good deal of central scripting, um, um, pro, um, broadcasts, uh, texts um, written um, up high in the organization that were intended for broadcast by all the services. Radio Free Europe never really had that. It was really a very decentralized operation from, uh, from the outset. And who were the people working there? Were they, were they journalists? Were they sports broadcasters? And did you retransmit, for example, uh, pieces that were on the BBC? The journalists were, um, came from a variety of backgrounds. Depending on the service, many of them had been professional journalists in uh, their homeland and then left um, uh, during World War II, um, many in the 40s as communist control was consolidated. Um, in the Polish service, for example, um, many, many of the uh, broadcasters had been eminent journalists uh, even pre-war in, 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 in Poland. So you had some real, real talent to draw on, and um, some of them were quite specialized. So um, if we're talking about sports, we had um, sports reporters, um, I think, in, in each of the services. Um, and uh, they'd generally been sports reporters of some kind at home. And then when they left, they continued um, specializing on sports reporting at, uh, at Radio Free Europe and at Radio Liberty. So how did sport sit within your broadcasts and your coverage? Because something like the Olympics became increasingly, say, politicised, an increasing showdown between East and West. And, and then there you are with some of the, the cream of a country's sports journalists looking for an outlet, and, and they're knocking on your door, I guess. Well, that, that did happen, and... Um uh, if we if we take the example of the Czechoslovak service, um, the uh, the star sports reporter um, was uh, Mr. Pavel Pahacek, who became uh, later the director of both uh, first the Voice of America Czechoslovak service and then the Radio Free Europe Czechoslovak service. He'd been a sports reporter for Radio Prague in the '60s. Um, he was a sports reporter because. Um, he came from a family that was considered politically suspect, so he couldn't be a political broadcaster, but he was allowed to be a sports broadcaster on Radio Prague, and he developed a, a, a real talent for that. And even later, when he was in the management and director of the service, he continued his, his, his sports reporting. He, was able, he, he left um, Czechoslovakia after the Soviet crackdown in 1968 and came first to Radio Free Europe, then to the Voice of America, and then back to Radio Free Europe. And you had other um, star um, sports reporters. Sports was um, an important part of the uh, broadcast mix. Um, uh, probably not daily, but certainly weekly, a special sports program. Um, sports would have been covered in, um, even in news reporting about developments in the East European countries. Um, and uh, it, it, it did become, of uh, course, part of the political discussion in the coverage of the Olympics. Um, RFE and RL were able to cover um, one way or the one way or another all the Olympic games, um, although there were efforts from time to time by the by the Eastern and uh, East European and, and Soviet regimes um, to prevent them from getting accreditation. Um, but one way or the other, they managed to cover really all the games and get the reports back um, to the audiences at home. Well, the first 
Olympics that the Soviet Union was in uh, was 1952 at uh, Helsinki. Did you manage to get people to that? Uh, because I wonder how you might have covered that in the immediate post-war. It, it was early days, and um, even in 1952, I, then then operating from Munich, um, uh, were the Czechoslovak and um, and and probably the Hungarian services in in 1952. In any case, there was um, coverage from Oslo and Helsinki. I think they weren't accredited. The RFE um, journalists were not um, accredited at that point, but they managed to cover the games anyway. I think from um, from from a hotel room in Oslo, and then um, the coverage was more extensive later um, after '52. Even later, when uh, when there were efforts uh, to, to sort of to deny accreditation for RFE uh, RL journalists, that didn't stop them from doing their job. Uh, and you know, if they couldn't get into uh, if they couldn't get into an event with press credentials, um, they'd buy they'd buy a ticket, or somebody'd buy them a ticket, and they'd get in and cover the event that way. Did you consider that your coverage was political, or or simply knowledge and information uh, of disseminating? It was um, in that context where um, information was tightly controlled at home by. Um, the East European and Soviet authorities. Any any uh, full, comprehensive um, information program was, by definition, political because it was unwelcome um, to those who were controlling the information at home. Um, the effort with the uh, sports program was to cover, uh, you know, cover the events. Um, but also talk to people. Um, and often some of the uh, athletes from Eastern Europe, they'd approach the RFE correspondents. Now, you wouldn't, uh, uh, you wouldn't compromise them. You wouldn't uh, broadcast their voices or their names. But, uh, you, you know, it's, it's a source of uh, getting information, context, background. Uh, and that was that was certainly, you know, while providing that kind of full information, it was uh, at the same time um, political. And of course, say for example, the Melbourne Games. That's a long, long way from home. And of course, that happened just after the uh, the invasion in Hungary. Melbourne was covered. I, I'm not sure how many um, um, correspondents, uh, uh, journalists, reporters were there, but it was covered. And that uh, Melbourne was a huge, uh, of course, a huge political event because um, 38 of the Hungarian athletes defected in Melbourne. Um, and of course, that was the big story for for Eastern Europe of uh, of the Melbourne Olympics. This being right after the Hungarian Revolution, um, a huge uh, defection, and I think in general, um, over the whole period of the Cold War, um, you had um, you know more you had larger and smaller numbers of of, def, of defections from these sports events by the East European athletes because it was one of the few um, opportunities that that they had to to to, to travel and um, this was this was a continuing embarrassment of course for the the communist regimes well covered by Radio Free Europe and in, in that sense of course um, political well, yes, and uh, the more you cover a sport, the better you get at it. How did your coverage compare to the uh, the sports reporters in those home countries in Eastern Europe? 
of course, the view of the uh, of the RFE people is that their their coverage was better, and I suspect that's probably the case. One thing they were able to um, scoop, um, in a sense, the uh, the correspondence of the reporters from, let's say, the Hungarian news agency or the Polish news agency at home, because they could uh, they could uh, they could get th- their reports on the air um, more quickly, sort of in real time, whereas the uh, the official um, reporters from Eastern Europe often had to go through their own um, bureaucracies, and it was just a, a much less efficient operation in those days. Um, so they were able to scoop the uh, uh, domestic correspondence often, and uh, and they were able to pro- provide a context, including um, interviews with uh, background information, at least, from some of the athletes in Eastern Europe that would not have been um, allowed or wouldn't have been um, e- even tried by the official correspondent. You may have found yourself developing quite a devoted following. I think so. I think, and and the sports reports were uh, among the most uh, fo- the, uh, the most tuned in uh, broadcasts. Uh, I think in the whole program mix, very very popular. And that must have been very satisfying as well. Well, it was because. Uh, Again, if the uh, if the purpose of these broadcasts was to be a full service substitute, so-called surrogate uh, radio for the countries that couldn't uh, couldn't allow that, uh, their regimes could not allow that at home, then you wanted to provide uh, you know everything and and sports was uh, since it was of so much interest to so many in the audience, um, it was it was a, a very important part of the program, absolutely. And what about sabotage and infiltration? Did you have KGB agents trying to nobble your station, for instance? Um, There were, uh, over the years, quite a number of um, uh, agents from the KGB, the Eastern Bloc Intelligence Services. Um, Some of them then went back home, were surfaced in uh, propaganda press conferences, um, they gathered information. They never really tried to influence the program. In fact, there's a story from the uh, the most uh, the highest ranking uh, KGB agent, Oleg Tumanov, um, who actually became one of the leading editors of the Russian service. Um, had uh, at one point he he he'd risen high enough in Radio Liberty that he told his KGB handlers, "Well, look, I can uh, I can affect the program here. What do you want me to do?" And they said, "Are you crazy? Your job is not to affect influence the program. Your your job is to gather information." And so that's 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 what he did. Uh, but there's another part of the story, and that goes back to the effort of these communist regimes to discredit. Um, uh, Radio for Europe and Radio Liberty, um, including in the International Olympic Committee. And um, the, the, the strongest uh, documentation of that uh, goes back to a, a meeting of the Communist Intelligence Services in Prague in 1976, and they adopted a kind of action program to, to propaganda and influence operations against Radio Free Europe. Uh, we have the document uh, from that meeting in the Wilson Center Digital Archive, and it specifically mentions efforts to uh, discredit Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, in the International Olympic Committee. And I think it's out of that came uh, these efforts in 1976 um, 
to block accreditation in uh, the Winter Games in Innsbruck, which actually happened. And then uh, uh, they tried again to block accreditation in the um, Montreal Summer Games in 76, and that failed. RFE and RL did get accreditation there. So um, not just gathering information internally through spies, but also trying, the communist regimes were also trying to um, organize a kind of public relations um, propaganda campaign against these radio stations around Western Europe and in the International Olympic Committee. And what were the punishments for listening to RFE broadcasts? In the very early days, meaning in the 50s, um, there, there may have been a few occasional arrests for actually listening. The crime was um, uh, disseminating, disseminating information. If you'd um, passed on information from Radio Free Europe to other people, for example, in your factory or, or someplace like that, that was considered an actionable crime, and people were actually... Um, uh, so, uh, even in the early in the early days, even imprisoned for that, um, that passed, um, and over time it just became um, an accepted practice to to listen and even to share information, and the authorities stopped trying to to, to prosecute people for for for, for that. Um, it wasn't encouraged, of course, but it was tolerated because they were fighting a losing battle. Precisely, yeah. Uh, they, they, they basically gave up on, on, on trying to stop that part of it. It must be impossible nowadays trying to block information exchanges, mustn't it? Well, uh, of course, now in the age of uh, the internet, social media and all that, um, it, 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 it's a different cat and, cat and mouse game. Um, uh, we have in China the, great, uh, uh, the great, great firewall. They try to block access to this, that and the other thing. People find, find ways around it still. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org. These podcasts are part of the project The Global History of Sport in the Cold War, which is sponsored by the National Endowment of the Humanities, directed by Professor Bob Edelman of UC San Diego, Professor Chris Young from the University of Cambridge, and Dr Christian Osterman of the Woodrow Wilson Centre, and run in collaboration with the German Historical Institute Moscow, the Jordan Centre for Advanced Russian Studies at New York University, and Pembroke College, University of Cambridge. The presenter is Vince Hunt and the series is produced by Vince Hunt and Laura Deal.